0: Having a robust communication style, having an access to the spectrum of who we are as human beings is very useful, is empowering, and is growth-promoting. And that's where I feel we need to get to as a humanity, and that's going to be more powerful for us. Hello,
1: and welcome to the BBXX podcast, Let's Get Intimate. I'm your host, Sasha Laurie, and we're here to challenge the way our culture has conditioned us to talk and think about sexuality, intimacy, and healthy relationships. To question everything, to embark on a journey of self-understanding, and to begin to rewire some of the backwards thinking that we've absorbed from the subconscious influences that have shaped us all. Our hope for you and for myself and for all of us here at BBXX who are on this journey with you every day, is that through a better understanding of our own identity of who we are and why we are that way, we can form deeper connections with other people and live healthier, more fulfilling relationships as a result. Join us as we change the conversation and the culture surrounding intimacy and relationships. And remember that better relationships equals a better life. Stefano Sifanos is a love and relationship coach and expert on masculine and feminine energies. His goal is to help give women, Mother Earth, and humanity in general, a group of men that's more connected, grounded, open-hearted, and open-minded— by helping them discover who they are and cultivate a deeper sense of self. Through his own personal experiences, working with countless experts along the way, and deeply examining his own masculinity and social constructs of what it means to be a man in contemporary times, he has set out on a quest to free fellow men from their mental, emotional, and spiritual limitations, beginning... With expanding his own. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: I wanted to start out with a quote that I came across listening to your interviews and it really struck a chord with me and it was this idea that our greatest voids or our deepest voids can become some of our greatest values and obviously BBXX, (laughs) this company I've built and the conversations we have didn't come out of nowhere. I didn't build a company to help connect people and to enhance intimacy in our lives because I had plenty of it. I didn't want to help people communicate better because I had any concept of healthy communication or healthy relationships. And so the quote kind of made me chuckle, but also really, yeah, struck a chord. And so I wanted to just have you begin by speaking a bit to that quote and to your journey behind it.
0: Yeah, that quote very much resonated true for who I was at that time in my life and who I am, and just reflecting on the human condition that often what we don't have in our lives, particularly during early childhood or during our developmental years of becoming, moving into adulthood, those voids shape what we are most attracted to and what we most want. So for example, for me, I really yearned for and lacked connection and intimacy and being seen and I was very much judged as a young child and as an adult, I I thrive in connection, I thrive in intimacy, I thrive in seeing others, in helping others see themselves. And so some of my greatest values in terms of the service that I give to the world is really about how do we heal those broken parts of us or the, you know what we perceive to be broken? Because we're not really broken. It's just coming into wholeness. And I felt very broken as a child. So that's where that came from.
1: Yeah. You also right here and before I'd heard you mention that idea of not healing from being broken, but from not being whole and coming into wholeness. And so what helped you along that obviously ongoing journey, but what has helped you? Where did you kind of start and what were those pieces missing or damaged or that you had to work on kind of cultivating to get closer to that feeling of wholeness?
0: It really began for me feeling the unfelt feelings that I was quote unquote meant to feel at the point of the infliction of trauma multiple times over my life, throughout my life. And so that began with having to feel those feelings and embrace the uncomfortable aspect of self, the shadow self, the darkness, the parts that were very uncomfortable, such as the aggression, such as jealousy, such as frustration, such as deep sadness, such as longing to belong. Embracing those feelings and those states and those experiences as opposed to numbing them with alcohol or sex, or TV, or food, or and, they, and I'm not generalizing, I'm speaking to very specific examples for me personally, and obviously they're applicable to other people, or business, you know, making money, and whatever it may be. And none of these things are intrinsically, quote-unquote, bad. It's just the come from, for me, was avoidance. And so coming face-to-face with I'm choosing not to avoid these very uncomfortable feelings anymore, and I'm, I'm choosing to delve into what does it mean for me? How do I forgive? How do I let go? How do I release? Obviously, feeling is a big part of that. How do I do that deeper a work? And the most important part was I have to face this stuff.
1: I love how you distinguished that it's not necessarily any one of these behaviors, particularly on its own, that could be that negative or bad, but the why behind it and kind of the reason for it, as you mentioned in your case, numbing these other feelings you weren't willing or able or capable of sitting with. For other people who might be listening, how would you recommend that they recognize if they are feeling these or refusing to feel these emotions? How can we I think a lot of times people don't realize they're numbing something or distracting themselves and don't even get onto the level where they can tap into those kind of levels of emotions and feelings and the why beneath things.
0: So I feel it's very important to really seek support outside of ourselves and outside of our own vantage point, our own perspective. So whether you're working with a psychologist, a support group, a counselor, a therapist, say an energy healer, whatever it may be, someone that can give you insight into aspects of your being and behavior and expression and shadow that you generally would struggle to access on your own. That's very important.
1: It's not easy work. And for people listening, and I think a lot of times when we hear somebody who has put in a lot of Work talking about where they are now or even how far they've come, not even where they are now, because they may still be very far from where they want to go. But it's easy to assume that it came more easily to them or that, well, I've tried some of these things and it didn't work. But there's actually a lot behind the scenes. And you, in particular, have tried, it seems... Almost everything in existence in terms of natural healing remedies, psychological kind of healing remedies, would you just kind of recap a bit so people can understand kind of the work you've put in? And if you could speak to any one of them that were particularly impactful for you on your journey?
0: Uh, (laughs) So many. Traditional therapy, traditional counseling, psychotherapy, psychosomatic work, breath work, trauma release Therapy and work, uh, trauma-informed work, inner childhood work, and inner childhood therapy, energy healing, whether it be Reiki or something else. There are so many time in solitude, very deliberate time in solitude, shaman-based work, sexual somatic, psychosomatic work, and journeys into that space. EMDR, emotional literacy training, and, and you know, not only have I partaken in many of these therapies or practices as a student, but also as a client. So not only have I learned them to then teach them, but also really participated in them a great deal as a client. There are some.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Just a few. I couldn't help but smile a bit as you were saying them at the irony, because if we think about things in terms of physical health, and if somebody says, oh, what training have you tried? What workouts? And if you said, oh, I've done, you know, tennis, Pilates, CrossFit, plyometrics, high intensity interval trainings, you could name off all of these things and it's just pretty standard. Yet, when we ask somebody what different trainings or methods of improving your mental health or your emotional health have you tried? probably a lot of people don't get past one, two, three, maybe. But there's just so much in terms of why are we willing to put so much more into our physical health and our emotional and mental health and also the importance of realizing that the first few things won't necessarily work out or maybe they kind of will, but there's still more to be learned, different variations, different versions that might work better for us or better for a future version of us and just that kind of juxtaposition between the physical, the body and the mind and the way we treat them and also interpret and cope with them.
0: Well I think one of the one of the big reasons why the physical is more accessible than the mental and the emotional is because it's more tangible. We can see it and we experience it with our physical senses. And because it's more tangible, we almost make it more real. Not necessarily the case, but there's something in that where it's easier to look at what's physical, and it's a low-hanging fruit, whereas the intangible, the immaterial, it, it can confuse us, and it's more unknown. With the unknown comes uncertainty and unfamiliarity, and with that comes fear. So we're generally fear-reverse, and so we don't go into the unknown, we don't venture there too much, but there's so much wisdom in the unknown because before something becomes known, it's unknown, and we have to explore and venture. And our ancestors have done that for millennia upon millennia, for millions of years, and hence why we are where we are as a humanity today, in part from an evolutionary perspective, but from a sociocultural perspective as well. So there's something to be said for venturing into the unknown, and the mindscape and the emotional being and the spiritual self is part of that integration. I think we have a a long way to go. And I think we're also really close in terms of how we see ourselves. How would you
1: describe the relationship between the mind and the body or even kind of emotional, mental and physical health and exploration?
0: I think it's crucial. I think it's necessary. I think of what makes us human when we look at the construct of being human it's our physical self it's our spiritual self our emotional our psychological and our relational self which ties it all together and so with these five aspects of self I, i don't think one outweighs the other they're equally as important it's also very important to understand that our physical body and our physical intact structure of our physical being it houses our consciousness or our awareness, our expression, our ideas, our beliefs, our love, our hate, our everything, everything that is us. And so there is, like, if we look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs to some degree, that physical well being is very important. And once we take care of that, there's this aspect of being human that just opens up to us in the most amazing of ways.
1: Absolutely. That deep relationship. And then kind of, the discrepancies in terms of how we interpret it and cope with or fear physical versus emotional danger or pain. But then again, how closely they are intertwined in actuality because so much of physical pain can be treated through the mind and so much of emotional and mental stress can show itself through the body. And so really kind of learning to train one uh, and strengthen one through the other. We talk about this a bit for men specifically, but your work goes deeply into not just masculinity, but femininity and the relationship between masculine and feminine energies. I'd love to have you just introduce the concept of masculine and feminine qualities or traits and how you got into this work, where your interests came from.
0: I got into this work because I was curious about my own sense of self and have been from a very young age. And for me, it was just a natural progression and evolution. And not that it's a hierarchy, it's just, it's maybe a lateral progression, horizontal progression. There are many areas that I'm delving into and I continue to delve into as a man, but as a human being. In terms of characteristics fundamentally it's important to understand a couple of things firstly any characteristics that we assign to masculine and feminine somewhat more culturally assigned than biologically assigned although there is an element of biology that's integrated into masculinity and femininity but it's not exclusive so unfortunately it's a complex conversation but probably needs to be more simple and it could be more simple but there is a distinction between men and women biologically we have different anatomy our hormonal profiling is different there's males and females masculine and feminine energetics is an expression it's two wings of the same bird two sides of the same coin we learn through contrast and that's when we separate and we compartmentalize which the brain does very well to survive we're categorizing and by categorizing often happens is we label and we say well that's good and that's bad and that's not necessarily healthy either and so fundamentally we're human. I wouldn't be surprised in the next few years if there are certain people that have issue with being called a human. They may feel that's not healthy either for them. And that can add more confusion to who we are. But fundamentally, we do have males and females. And there is also the biological construct of androgyny as well. And so masculine feminine qualities aren't limited or exclusive to men or women. They reside within every single human being, every sentient being. And it's just a way to understand the world. But for example, strength and resilience resides within every human being. I mean, I could imagine a woman giving birth and not carrying strength and being resilient.
1: Right. And I think there's research that says women have higher pain tolerances in some way, but then that's not how our stereotypes capture it. And I'm not sure why.
0: Uh, Well, I think part of that is because over the years we've assigned these qualities to mean better than or or worse than so to speak and i think that's one of the flaws that we have where we've as a humanity we've almost demonized our differences we've made our differences have to be worse or better and the truth of it is that our differences can be celebrated there's nothing wrong with that gender talk is a very complicated nuanced new form of identity Fundamentally, there's male and female, but now there's also transgender, gender neutral, non-binary, agender, pangender, two spirit, third gender—all like all of these different combinations. And it's—it's it's, again, they're not wrong or right. If you say to me, "Hey, Steph, I'd love for you to refer to me as gender neutral," I'm not going to say to you, "No." Why would I say that? I, I can't see why I would say no. I'm not going to refer to you as that. That's your choice. Sure, I'm going to refer to you as that if that's what you want. I'm going to respect your choices. And we can't still deny that there are males and females from a perspective of genetics and what that actually means. So why are we bringing this up? Why is this somewhat relevant? Because from an evolutionary perspective, because there's anthropology, there's evolutionary psychology, there's biology, there's how we've evolved as human beings, as a species, we've seen that men have generally been more physically active. And in order to, they've been responsible for extending the perimeter, for surviving, for fighting off danger in the wild. And a woman's role has been one of another one that's contributed to our survival and our thriving in many different ways. And so, because again, we, we come back to that physical being very tangible, a man's strength and resilience, yes, it's been mental and emotional like a, a female's, but it's been more obvious in the physicality. And again, for some reason, because we see the physical, it's very tangible to us, we've maybe prioritized that. And so maybe we've added more weight to that. And then we've said, oh, well, strength and resilience is a masculine quality, but that's not necessarily completely true. And so as we've just discussed, with, with as one example of many, a woman giving birth, I mean, that requires compassion and strength and resilience and toughness and focus and determination and focus and determination and toughness, these are generally quote-unquote masculine attributes. But again, that doesn't mean that a female doesn't carry those attributes, just like it doesn't mean that a man or a male doesn't carry attributes such as compassion, empathy, as an example, that have generally been associated with females or the feminine. So I think we've got to move a little bit beyond, before we can get to masculine-feminine dynamics or do-and-be energy, go-and-flow energy, active-passive energy, which again, learning by contrast we have to come to some level of acceptance that these are human qualities and human traits. And I think that can help us move outside of the scope of difference is bad. I think that's really healthy.
1: And I think I almost imagine that rather than being on a different side of the spectrum in terms of male or female, I see them kind of grouped and just grouped separately, whether it's on a spectrum or kind of all over the place, but other qualities that tend to go along with one. So perhaps empathy goes with compassion, goes with patience, these other things that might be grouped together and people can adapt or learn or bring into their life and onto their spectrum a new set of these qualities, regardless of if they were previously conceived of being masculine or feminine. And so I think perhaps having you speak a bit to your journey through them and these qualities that you've been able to grow into or adopt or dive deeper into might help people
0: in terms of
1: seeing it on a spectrum, but not one as strictly bound by sex or gender.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I think qualities and traits, expressive traits, uh, really do reside on a spectrum. And I feel that As humans, it's very healthy for us to have a blend of all of those traits. I think sometimes humans can identify with a core energetic. Me personally, I I generally identify with a core masculine energetic and therefore tend to have more, quote-unquote, masculine qualities or outwardly projected qualities. But that's not to say I'm not very internal. If there was a contrast, I'm very internal, personally. So I think it's healthy for us to have a combination of these qualities. So what are some of those these qualities? Again, traditionally speaking, some of the qualities that may be associated with a masculine energetic would be introspection, stillness, presencing or presence, honoring or honor, clarity, being powerful, being robust, being magnetic, purposeful, uh, explorative energy, stable in oneself, trustworthy, goal oriented assertion or being assertive, being singular and rational, analytical, fierce, determined. These are some of the qualities. Linear and logical, emissive. That doesn't mean that these qualities don't reside within a woman, nor should they. Of course they should, and they can, and they do. Other feminine qualities may be that earthly grounded connection, feeling, being conservative, heartfulness, softness, intuition, cooperation and collaboration, Awareness, surrendering, vibrancy, Um, the the feeling or the sense of connectedness, wisdom and movement, caring, compassion, empathy, embodiment, sustainable in choice and action and thought, aesthetic beauty, um, passion, emotional, permissive, affection or affectionate, tenderness, being catalytic, balance, harmony, vulnerability, responsiveness, again, traditionally, in some areas of teaching, these have been more associated with feminine energetics, these qualities. But again, it's not to say that openness, transparency, and vulnerability doesn't exist within males. Again, vulnerability is considered a quote-unquote feminine quality. So this is where I think it can be really confusing for people, and it's really important to just look at, okay, let's look at human traits and human qualities as a starting point, and then let's get to contrasts. So let's look at that human qualities and human traits as a starting point. Let's look at what do I want to develop more of it within my own being and within my own expression, and what do I need to probably do a little less of or be a little less of? Where am I too much or too animated in a certain area? Because then we're finding harmony in homeostasis, and homeostasis is the, almost this governing principle that drives all life, all sentient life, whether it's in nature, and our natural ecology, whether it's in human beings. So I feel that's a very strong starting point.
1: And again, you can pick up on the patterns and these sort of groupings as you go through them, but loved hearing the range of them. And I think anybody who is listening can obviously identify with things on all different areas of the spectrum. And even if they can't now, who doesn't want to at some point encapsulate this range of emotion and dynamacy and be a more dynamic human in order to better connect not only with themselves but with others. Who doesn't want to be able to be present or have magnetic purposefulness? I loved that one. Who doesn't want to be earthly grounded? Come on. Vibrant, collaborative, affectionate, and vulnerability, which you mentioned on kind of this traditionally female side of things. But a word that is at the forefront of the kind of modern masculinity movement.
0: Yeah, and also it's interesting, particularly with the women that I work with and the men that I work with, men and women equally and and couples as well, but with the women that I work with, they want a magnanimous, magnetic, purposeful man. They wouldn't necessarily want to be that themselves. They want that in, in a normative heterosexual dynamic. They want that in their partners, in their men. There's also something to be said for that. Now, whether that's a cultural inference purely or a combination, my perspective is a combination of evolution, biology, and culture, conditioning, how we've been exposed, history, not only short-term history, but long-term history in terms of how we've evolved over millions of years as humanoids, and the roles that we've naturally adopted and adapted to, and what we've been better suited to, and we complement each other. And there's nothing wrong with that, but we demonize that in our society. In a culture of what I perceive to be over-politically Correct discourse and, and a narrative that engages us immediately from the back foot. I think there's something to be said for celebrating difference, and I think in the past we haven't celebrated difference, and we've prioritised maybe these quote unquote masculine qualities more than the feminine, which has somewhat demonised the feminine, which isn't healthy, which has separated and caused segregation and isolation and divisiveness in our society and within the self. And that hasn't brought us harmony. That hasn't brought us homeostasis. That hasn't brought us intimacy and the need to be seen and to, to see others with the basic human needs, you know, to, to reciprocate respect and affection and acceptance and reverence for each other. So there's something that we can change there. And I, and I think if we step a little deeper into how do we celebrate difference, that can be a heart-opening starting point for us all.
1: Yeah, the concept of celebrating difference and also celebrating our capacity to blend and to mix these things as well. You mentioned kind of the role of evolution in history, gender roles you spoke to a bit earlier. Would you talk a bit about how from an evolutionary perspective and the clarity that gender roles did have back then and even kind of outside of gender, work, purpose-related roles played and how in today's world of technology, particularly in today's world for men, how perhaps the role has become a bit less clear and how that can sometimes lead to a sense of detachment from one's purpose or lack of clarity or crisis in a way.
0: A masculine-feminine construct can definitely, or, or collective cultural values can definitely impact our internalized sense of crisis. In other words, if we aren't behaving in accordance with the in group that we are a part of or our immediate community and how they see us or quote-unquote project and expect us to be, that can cause us to feel very disconnected and very unsafe within ourselves. That can cause us to face this internal sense of crisis. So if, particularly for men, We could say for a few thousand years, and again, depends, because cross-culturally it's not completely the same, men have played a particular role. And if that role is either taken away from them or they're unable to engage in that role, so for example, an example would be being the provider, they then deem themselves to be worthless. See, men, not only men in a modern sense, but men from an evolutionary perspective, and this is where the modern sense comes from, we have prided our value and our sense of self-worth on our utility. And so if you go back hundreds of thousands of years or, or millions of years, you look at men being of value by keeping their tribe safe or keeping their community safe or building something to protect or extending the perimeter or hunting food so that the family or community could eat and so forth. And a man particularly would have a very specific role within that tribe or within that community, within that group of people, whether it's making a weapon or some type of tool, or again, extending the perimeter or hunting or they'd be quite useful in that sense. And so this sense of utility and usefulness has compounded over periods of time. And and as we've grown socioeconomically and and socioculturally, and we've expanded and the layers of culture have deepened and and become more rich. We see that in career, in making money, in status and titles, and that masculine energetic associated with a man's success is how he validates himself, is how he derives value. And we see that generally the feminine and or female expression of that is through aesthetic beauty, how she holds herself emotionally, how she expresses and how she flows in the world. Again, that doesn't mean that men can't do that and women can't do the former or don't do the former. It's that as a man, we place a lot of value on our usefulness. And that's not only a a modern cultural construct, that's an evolutionary thing. And so understanding that can be very useful for interacting with each other and not taking things so personally and also seeing the world from a different lens and knowing that we carry intrinsic value as men. And it's not just about how much money we make or the titles that we have or the status that we have access to because that access to resources in a modern sense is an access to resources and a reliability that was placed on us in a more ancient sense. And there's something very neurological about that. It's systemic in our brains about that. And that's a balancing act that we sort of fight with today as men it's not an impossible fire by any means. And I'm not saying that we have to change that completely. I think we just have to redefine it.
1: As you were speaking, the words kind of purpose and usefulness came to mind. And I realized how in terms of deriving value from those two, it's quite different. Purpose can be judged kind of drawing from others, but in a way it's Really, a deeper sense coming from the self and feeling that feeling of purposefulness and having a purpose in life versus the sense of usefulness really is dependent on other people. You can be useful to yourself in a way, but that's more just kind of self reliant, right? Usefulness more seems like something dependent on. Your relationship to other people and what they kind of the judgments or the purpose or value you provide to them versus that is for or coming from yourself. Because you've spoken a lot to men needing to find self worth or really needing to be able to evaluate their self worth, be it high, low. And this concept for men, women, or anybody of self-worth is often kind of the biggest confusion, often the most painful point. And the problem with self-worth is that we look to things or people outside of ourselves for it. And so I'd love to have you kind of talk about that, the purposefulness and the usefulness and self-worth and then looking outside versus inside.
0: Well, when we consistently look outside to validate ourselves and to validate our life and our love for self we're coming from an insecure almost attached from self place we're coming from low self-worth we're coming from childhood wounding generally speaking because we haven't been taught how to be intimate how to express intimacy how to love from a healthy place so we're feeling quite disconnected and if we continue to come from that place we project and so then we attract other wounded people that match that frequency that match our that complement our wounding essentially and so we get caught in this vicious cycle that reinforces our low self-worth so for example you may be a people pleaser and you've learned that behavior because as a child maybe you grew up in a volatile environment and you learned that if you people please if you made your mum and dad really happy and you went above and beyond and you got good grades and you were the greatest at sport and you cleaned the house you did all these things you'd notice a less volatility less violence less abuse even if it was just marginal but you noticed that became a coping strategy you then learned that if i make other people happy and sacrifice my needs for others then i'm going to have peace in my life i'm not going to have violence that kept you safe Now, you carry on that energy or that pattern into your adult relationships, you're sacrificing yourself, you're people-pleasing others, you're generally going to attract people that also need the people-pleasing, i.e. narcissists, or people with hyper-selfish, self-absorbed, narcissistic tendencies that are going to take advantage of you, that are going to manipulate you, and you're caught in this circle that reinforces this need to people-please. That's very draining and very painful. All it does is reinforce that low sense of self-worth and you seeking validation outside of
1: yourself. I'm glad you brought up the example of people-pleasing. It's something that I think a lot of women cope with, but I think men also cope with a lot in a slightly different way. But in terms of realizing that you are acting or living your life or portraying a certain version of yourself for other people more than you are, for yourself. And I think that a lot of women and historically, I mean, that was basically the role of a woman, but there also wasn't that much flexibility in the role of a man in terms of the societal rules. And again, how much clarity was put on you support a household, you do this, you do X, Y, Z. But I think that women have perhaps had an easier time coming to the realization that's what they're doing and saying, I need to get in touch with what I want, what I need, who I really am. I think that a lot of men, again, in a slightly different way can be doing this, but perhaps have a lot more trouble even realizing it at any point or then trying to figure out what to do with that information if they can eventually realize, do I know who I am, what I need, what I want, and how to express that?
0: Men, unfortunately, haven't been exposed to and conditioned to express feelings. That's a issue for everyone, for all people, because it affects women and it affects men and it affects children. It affects just everyone, full stop. So it's not that we can't access emotions because we're non-emotive or because we don't have a limbic system. It's because... We haven't been raised to express emotions, generally speaking. There's also the other end of the spectrum where some people are too leaky with their emotions and have no self control or self mastery of their emotions. And that's not healthy either. So, men generally are told that it's wrong to emote and it's weak. And we don't want to be weak because that interferes and that impacts our ability to be useful. And we don't want to be weak because it doesn't feel good. And we live in a society and we have for a long time where. Feeling unpleasant feelings is not advised. It's disregarded. It's avoided. And we numb ourselves, whether it's with TV, with alcohol, with distraction, with workaholism, with any, you, you fill the gap in with whatever ism you wish. And so it's imperative that men begin to feel from a healthy place. Now, one of the ways that we can do that is surround ourselves with other healthy men, being in the familiar So with other men that can see us, pull us forward, challenge us in healthy ways, ask us to be better versions of ourselves, provide a safe place for us to express, where then we can bring not leaky energy or leaky emotions, but we can bring openness and transparency to the women in our lives, whether it's our mothers, our sisters, our partners, our daughters, our colleagues, whatever. And that then is going to be very helpful because we generally want to relate with others in a way that's familiar to us. So for example, if women have been more conditioned and it's more appropriate, it's been advised, they've been told that it's more appropriate for them to emote, they're going to want their men to emote. They're going to want their partners to emote because that's what's familiar to them. Mm. If men are accustomed to, and I'm being stereotypical here, I'm generalizing on purpose just to provide an example. Men are conditioned to shut down and avoid, then they will have an unconscious bias and expectation towards their part of their communication style being to shut down and avoid. That doesn't make it right just because it's familiar. So having a robust communication style, having an access to the spectrum of who we are as human beings is very useful, is empowering, and is growth promoting. And that's where I feel we need to get to as a humanity, and that's going to be more powerful for us.
1: I love hearing all these examples of, again, just kind of global human traits, characteristics, struggles, whether it's people-pleasing, whether it's trying to be useful, that could be in a, from a provider standpoint or a caretaker standpoint, these struggles with emoting How we feel, or even realizing it's very difficult to, on a physical level, on an emotional level, mental level, register what it is we're feeling, the why behind it, let alone then communicate it to ourselves and on top of that to somebody else. And so there are so many different people of all sides of the coin, masculine, feminine, and everything in between, who have expressed to me so many of these similar global human struggles. And so in order to help our listeners kind of look into their own lives and have something actionable, I think it helps to hear examples, whether that's from yourself or from people you've worked with in terms of what behaviors, exercises, or actionable pieces of advice have led to breakthroughs whether in the case of people-pleasing or looking outside of ourselves for value or being able to finally get in touch with who we are and what we need
0: and want? Yeah, I think facing all of who we are is very important. What I mean by that in terms of facing all of who we are is not polarizing our experiences so we have a propensity to move towards what's very comfortable, so happiness, ease of access, joy. And these are beautiful states to be in. In fact, they're what I call desirable states. And then we have undesirable states such as sadness and anger and jealousy and frustration and aggression, myriad other examples. Now, we don't want to constantly move towards these places because they're not desirable, clearly. If you lined up a thousand people and asked hey, would you rather be happy or sad unless someone has a pathology? I'd say a thousand out of a thousand are going to say happy. I'd rather be happy at a simple level, a very simple level. Yeah.
1: I love operational definitions. So now I'm like, and what would all 1000 definitions that's of right. happiness, happiness be? be. Yeah, that's <laughs>
0: right. And also beyond that, the truthful answer is, well, does it have to be an either or? Why can't I have both? Because I can't know one without the other, right? Contrast. But at a simple level, at a simple level, if you had to choose one, people are going to choose happiness, generally speaking. I'd say specifically speaking. Absolutely. (laughs) But there's nothing wrong with sadness. But because we won't choose it, we think something's wrong. There's nothing wrong with anger. These are states that have something to teach us, but we avoid them. And so to answer your question is embrace everything that comes to you. And as you embrace it and you honor it through the embracing of it, without polarizing yourself, What generally happens is you grow in a more whole, robust way because now you're not isolating yourself. You're not saying, oh, I don't like this. I'm going to do everything I can to avoid it. But You're missing a a sacred teaching that that experience has to offer. We have breakups. Maybe the breakup is traumatic and sad and there's anger there and there's grief and Instead of feeling the grief and cycling through all the different emotions and engaging in rituals such as maybe a a deliberate period of abstinence or or a practice of self-reflection or maybe a a letter-writing practice or an expressive practice or or an emotional release practice and a combination of this and more, we just say, well, fuck it. I'm just going to dig in. I'm going to get into my work. We avoid those very uncomfortable feelings. And like the bison, who doesn't run away from the storm, but rather moves in towards the eye of the storm to get through it quicker, that's probably what we need to do. We could take a leaf from the bison's book. And really, that there helps us achieve and embody what you're referring to.
1: Love the idea of taking a page out of the bison's book. So, particularly people who are struggling to identify who they really are, there are levels, there are parts of our authentic self we maybe haven't ever actually portrayed before. There are parts of our authentic self that we should and want to lean into more. But then there are also for people who have struggled with things like people-pleasing or looking outside of themselves for value who are portraying traits that aren't actually authentic to their inner selves. They might be a coping mechanism, a defense mechanism, or some sort of shield of protection, but it's not always easy to know the difference, right, of these authentic and inauthentic qualities. And so you mentioned if something is uncomfortable, that might mean it's something to lean in towards. But I was wondering if you could help clarify for people If they're struggling, again, with recognizing what are these authentic parts of me, how to really clarify between the shallow and the deep or the authentic and the inauthentic.
0: I think that comes with practice. I can't really tell anyone how to do that. Again, we live in a society that want tangible tools and techniques. When you look at many ancient teachings, the tangible tool and technique was go sit by yourself and be in nature and be with yourself. And come back to me when you have something. And that may take years. We all want a six-step process or a three-step process or a ten-step process. And often I'm just not interested in that. And just be with yourself. Be in stillness and silence. And I think that when we sit in solitude and we paradoxically move in stillness, we unpack who we are. And the answers that we are seeking for Or perhaps the questions that we need to be asking come to us.
1: I think that is an incredible example that really shows the simplicity and the complexity of this at the same time. And it was great to have you clarify that there is no easy answer. In a way, there might be a simple answer, but simple and easy are very different. And simple things can be very complex underneath. There is so much complexity in simplicity. And that kind of whole concept always fascinates me. But I do think it's helpful for people to hear. There is no one-stop shop, this six-step program. You just have to start and you have to practice. And you mentioned this concept of solitude and stillness and silence. And I think that is such a daunting place for so much of us, particularly in a world today where it's almost impossible to find, even if people are brave enough to look for that and seek it out. It is not as easy as it used to be with all the distractions and the busyness and the thoughts and everything moving 100 miles an hour. I'd love to have you Talk a bit about the difference between isolation and solitude, the struggle of isolation and your kind of proposed solution of solitude.
0: Isolation generally comes from fear and a feeling of less than. Isolation will generally come from a place of I'm not worthy, I'm not enough, I'm really scared, life is dangerous, people are dangerous, people are unsafe, I don't feel connected to my body. I don't feel connected to myself. Isolation is almost forced, whereas solitude is very deliberate and solitude is a choice. Solitude is a choice to be on one's own, but you don't feel alone. You are with oneself. You're with yourself in order to gain context and understanding and wisdom in the world. So they're very different come-froms. That's essentially the the fundamental difference between isolation and solitude. Solitude is something that's coming from a healthy place, knowing that you're going to gain from this experience, whereas isolation comes from a sense of lack, sense of not having enough, being enough, feeling enough, and being forced. Like isolation, for example, is you may be surrounded by hundreds of people, but you feel very alone, you feel intimidated. You get up in the morning, you go to your work in your cubicle, and you you get in your cubicle car and you drive home or your cubicle train and you have your fast zap microwave meal and you stay at home and you watch TV or you play video games or you read or whatever you're doing but you're you're afraid to be with other people, you're afraid to either be seen or what others will see in you or you witnessing others. It's really fear-driven isolation whereas solitude is very comfortable in one's sense of self.
1: You mentioned how isolation and solitude come from very different places. Could you tell us how they each then have the ability to take us to very different places?
0: Yeah, well, isolation breeds isolation. Solitude is going to breed opportunity. It's going to breed possibility and potential. It's going to give you a sense of wholeness, a sense of peace. Isolation is just going to give you more uncomfortable feelings that you're going to try and continue to avoid through whatever your distraction methods are. It's going to give you more of that, I'm not good enough, I'm not enough, I'm not feeling strong enough, I'm not feeling connected enough, et cetera.
1: A myriad of distractions to choose from these days, aren't there? You mentioned how isolation is this place of fear, it will take you to more fear versus solitude can take us to a different place. And so it just reminded me of how on a a human level and on a functional level, the choices we make, the actions we choose, the distractions we equip ourselves with. A lot of these come from and can also lead to fear of rejection, abandonment, and humiliation, which are three topics I've heard you talk about before. And so would just love to have you dive a bit deeper into that and kind of relate them to one another.
0: So I'll start with this. Perpetual fear is, and I'm not talking about the fear that keeps us safe, psychological and emotional fear, spiritual fear, whatever it may be. It really is associated with constriction and restriction. It's like that constricted energy. That's what fear does to us. It constricts us. It retracts us from the world. It keeps us playing very small. It minimizes our expression. And so if we come from that place, we're constantly going to be in fear of abandonment or rejection or humiliation. These are core fears, by the way. Fears of loss, fear of not being enough. And so the more we allow that fear to consume us, the more worried we become about those things that we're trying to avoid, the more we try to avoid them. The more tactics we implement to avoid them, the more fear we experience in order to keep us on our toes, in order to keep us very aware of, oh, I don't want to experience that, what do I need to do? And so all of a sudden that becomes our life as opposed to our life being one of expansion. I mean, the universe is, at a physical level, the universe is about expansion and contraction. So we're no different in the the human psyche is no different, but we're a little different in the sense that we get to choose that desirable state of expansion or that undesirable state of contraction. Sometimes we choose unconsciously because we're conditioned through neurological grooves in our brain, through patterns, behavior, and so forth. Familiarity that make us think and feel, oh, well, this is what I need to do and this is who I need to be. However, there's an opportunity that we have at every choice that we make. We want to choose to come from fear, retraction, rejection, pain, abandonment, humiliation, or do we want to step into what would it look like to conquer these fears? What would it look like to understand this part of me? What would it look like to connect to this part of me that's protecting me from feeling something that's really painful that I'm running from? And if I go into this with a mindset of this is temporal and I get to expose a part of me that I haven't touched before, which may then bring me closer to that sense of wholeness, which pulls me further away from fear, I wonder what that would look like. So if we can approach life from a place of curiosity, that can be very empowering for us and lead us more towards expansion as opposed to contraction.
1: I couldn't help but think about how some of these terms and these fears that we kind of project or assume that other people have control over are actually kind of, within ourselves, and we have almost more power than other people over them. This is a half-baked thought, but I couldn't help but think about, for example, abandonment or rejection. That's a feeling I, as an individual, have internally. It can be the result of somebody's actions. If, or if something embarrassing happens, the people who might be making fun of me, yes, they can make it much more likely that I will feel that, but they don't have control over whether or not I'm embarrassed or feel humiliated. Or if somebody leaves us, we might feel rejected or abandoned, but in a way, perhaps we've also subconsciously or consciously decided that relationship wasn't healthy maybe it was in our best interest. And if we look at it differently, we can actually feel closure. We can actually feel a weight lifted off of us rather than abandonment or rejection. And obviously some of these feelings are unavoidable and in a a small dose will happen or can help stimulate change or new relationships or close chapters that need to be closed. But I just couldn't help but think that perhaps these fear of these feelings is more within our own power and control than we
0: realize. Yes, it is. Very much is.
1: Yeah, that's incredible. And I'm not sure if there's anything more powerful and empowering in that realization, right? If more people could not just think about it on a theoretical level, but really adopt that mentality and enact that in their behaviors and in their relationships, I think we would see a lot of difference in our relationships and in the world, but also that we would feel it within ourselves. Have you heard of social ecology? Are you familiar with that term? Very much so. I just learned about it, loved it. If you would be willing to share with our listeners the way you kind of interpret it and and what you've learned from it, because if you think about it on a very basic level, if we can't even show respect, if we don't know how to collaborate with and have intimacy and connection to another human, clearly we won't necessarily enact that or live that out in our relationship to plants, animals, and the environment, et cetera.
0: Yeah, so from what I remember, I studied this in, for my, my master's degrees, what I want to remember there's five, five levels, I think, so to speak, or five centers of the, the social ecology model. And essentially it's just the, the study of relationships between us as people and us and our environment. Now environment isn't just our biological ecology but also our social institutions, our culture, our politics, our economics, the the way we understand how our principles and policies and the way we think and our consciousness affects impacts and influences our natural ecology and so from that perspective uh, and I think if I remember correctly Murray Bookchin he was because an academic field I, just, I remember studying this in, in my master's and so it was really interesting because what I started really understanding from this model was this intrapersonal aspect of self so our our beliefs our knowledge our attitudes our values our concept of selves even the way we've developed all of this leading to interpersonal processes of how we relate to ourselves to people to our environment formal and informal social networks what's important to us to then moving to the greater whole like institutional factors and community and earth and so forth and how we as individuals affect the collective and the whole, and how the collective and the whole and those collective ideologies impact and influence us as individuals as well. From what I recall, the key components are community, relationship, individual, societal, political, institutional, which is socioeconomical, socio cultural, and then how we then basically interact in a healthy way with everything that is in our environment. So, for example, are we spending time in nature? Are we contributing to our communities? Are we contributing to social and cultural norms? Are we influencing the development of social, cultural norms and policy and and so forth? How are we supporting ourselves? How are we supporting others? It's this very community-based model, for lack of a better term. It's advocating harmony. in in the natural world and with human community. Again, celebrating difference, celebrating diversity, celebrating creativity and freedom. Obviously, education is a big part of that. It's more about education and how do we live in harmony without how do we create social equity in our world? How do we move away from maybe definitive or dogmatic hierarchy? How do we leverage technology, community, collaboration, to create a world that is, quote unquote, fairer, or again, provides greater equitable access to resources. But essentially, it's how do we live in greater harmony with our environment, which I think is very valuable. It's just how do we make a transition towards that? Because right now, we're not necessarily living from that space. Right now, we're more about If I had to sum it up in in as short as possible, right now we're living from a place of maximising shareholder interests, corporate quarterly profits first at any cost. Now there's nothing wrong with that per se, but the at any cost piece, that's a problem because other areas of life, human interaction, environment, politics being corruptible, economics taking a stronghold over other integral values such as health and education, That's where we're losing. That's a problem.
1: I loved the concept of living in harmony and whether that's in the environment, a relationship with the environment, with each other or with ourselves. The, again, simple, yet very complex realization of how these are deeply intertwined and one is the consequence of the other. And so if we look at our relationship with the environment, We need to take a step back and realize it is shaped by our relationships with each other as humans, and then take a step back and realize that all of our relationships with other people are deeply shaped by, empowered by, limited by our relationship with ourselves. So... As we get ready to wrap up, I'd love to just ask you, through this whole interview, we've talked about harmony within ourselves or the struggles within ourselves. And you've mentioned this concept of being able to love from a healthy place. I'd love to just have you kind of summarize the importance of the work and also kind of what encapsulates the journey in terms of where one can hope to begin and where that would enable them to take that relationship with themselves?
0: I think where we hope to begin is meeting ourselves where we're at and taking ownership of where we are at and an inventory of where we are at and meeting ourselves there. And what does that look like? That looks like not underselling yourself. That looks like not going too deep too quick sometimes because that can be a little off-putting and that's a a protective strategy or quote-unquote what appears to be a self-sabotaging strategy and we're better than that. And so putting less pressure on ourselves to perform is important and at the same time providing ourselves with an incentive to perform is important. And Finding that balance is really found through practice. There are processes that we can engage in. We've spoken to many today. And one of them is just setting an intention to discover something that you didn't know about yourself. And maybe you do that through a process of practicing deliberate solitude. And Maybe it takes a little time and maybe you get to instill some patience during that process. I think that's important.
1: I think that's wonderfully said. And I just... Again, I love this concept of balance, but also blending. And it's not always necessarily a back and forth, but a mix and a blending of, as we talked about in the beginning with the feminine and the masculine, how much overlap and blending there can be. With expansion and contraction, we want to get to this state of expansion, but at the same time, contraction, if we think about breath one leads to the other. And each time, perhaps the contraction can be smaller. Every time we contract, it allows for a bigger breath and for a next bigger step in growth. Like you mentioned, sometimes you have to start small. You can't go too deep too soon. You spoke to kind of sadness and happiness and the ability to only know one through the lens of another and having that perspective. And lastly, with solitude and intimacy sometimes we need solitude and that stillness and silence within ourselves to be able to find intimacy within ourselves and with others so thank you so much for all your insight today thank you for having me i learned so much and there were even some new concepts in here for me and i look forward to continuing the conversation
0: yeah likewise thank you Thank
1: you so much to each and every one of you for tuning in to listen to our show. If you like what you learned and you know someone who might also like listening, please do share this podcast. You can also feel free to reach out to us anytime if you'd like to submit questions, requests for experts to have on the show, or if you'd like to share your positive feedback or constructive criticism. We'd love to hear what you think. It's the only way. We can learn and grow along with you. Be sure to check out our website, follow us on Instagram at bbxx.world, and subscribe to the Book Club newsletter, where we send out even more resources to help you dive even deeper to the topics that we bring to you on the show. Once again, we encourage you to take what we discuss on this show and apply it in your everyday life. Because remember, better relationships equals better life.